Uh, Will Timmons is going to preach for us this morning from Romans, and I'll be reading uh, from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We're continuing where we left off in Romans 3, um, which I think was about 18 months ago, so I don't know if you remember that that now. Um, I'm just getting myself set up here because this is now set up for a particular height of person, which I'm not. Okay, that. Okay. Let me pray for us as we look at Romans um, 4, verses 1 to 8. Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your precious word. We thank you for this day. Thank you for, um, for your Son, which displays your glory above the heavens. We thank you, Father, above all, for your word, which um, displays to us the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we come to it now, you speak to the deepest fears and anxieties and concerns of our hearts, especially concerning the future, um, with all the uncertainties that that holds. And we pray that your Spirit would speak to us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm I'm sure you'll agree with me that there are very few TV programs um, that are worthy, uh, worth watching, let alone that are worthy of awards. But I trust you'll also agree that Gardening Australia is the exception. Um, It's every week you get to appreciate the rich um, biodiversity of Australia, the beautiful variety of plant life, and um, some of the great projects that are taking place around the country to bring um, to bring green life into our urban jungle. You also learn some very helpful gardening tips. Um, from Costa and Millie and Josh and co. And here's one that Tino gave the other day. When you've got little seedlings planted out in the garden, they're very vulnerable to blackbirds. And what happens is the blackbirds will come along and when the seedlings are still young and their roots are not yet going down deep, they will pluck those seedlings out and they will eat them for dinner. And the solution, says Tino, is to get a, a plant pot or some other container, and to put it over the seedling to protect it from the blackbirds, and then once the roots are stable and strong, you can take that that little plant pot off, and they'll be safe, and the blackbirds won't trouble those little plants anymore. Now, that's good advice, because plants need strong roots, roots that go down deep into the soil that gives them security. Now, here in Romans 4, Paul is showing us that what he's been teaching about justification by faith in chapters 1 through to chapter 3 has roots, Um, deep roots, roots which go all the way down into the second millennium BC, to the very first account that we have in in the Bible of God ever justifying anyone. 
God's justification of Abraham in Romans, uh, not Romans, in Genesis chapter 15. So what has Paul been arguing? He's been arguing that we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from any works of the law, that it's not our performance record of righteousness that puts us right with God, but it's God's gracious provision of righteousness for us in the death and resurrection of Christ that means that now, through faith, we can be declared righteous by God and be accepted by him as righteous, just as Christ is accepted by the Father, as righteous in his sight. But this righteousness, Paul says, is received by faith apart from any works. So chapter 3, verse 20. No one will be justified, that is, declared righteous, in God's sight by works of the law. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God, this gift righteousness, through faith in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 28. We consider that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, the problem Paul has is that most of his Jewish contemporaries, and no doubt some of the people in Rome as well, would have thought of this teaching as rootless, as a novelty, with no connection to the past at all. What is this new, newfangled teaching of justification by faith, apart from works of the law? And so when Paul asks in chapter 4, verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, found to be the case. He's intentionally tracing the doctrine of justification all the way down to its deepest roots, all the way down as far as you can go to the very beginning of Abraham, because he's trying to answer the question, is this teaching secure? Is it planted deeply in the soil of history, such that we can bank our lives on it, and we can bank our eternal destinies on it, is it solid and reliable and trustworthy? Has it stood the test of time? Does it have roots? And Paul's answer, obviously, is yes. Because when you go back to the first father of the Jewish people, to Abraham, you learn two things about the type of person that God has always justified and will always justify. The first is that God justifies the believer and not the worker. And the second is that God justifies the sinner and not the righteous. Now, I think we might only have time for the, for the first point this morning. So I think this will be a sermon in two parts, the second part coming probably in about three weeks' time. Okay? So anyway, the first, God justifies the believer, not the worker. So Paul says in verse 2 that if Abraham was justified by works, then he has a reason for boasting. In other words, he could come before God confident of his acceptance because of his obedience, because of his performance record. He could, with pride, show God his record of achievements and expect the doors of heaven to swing um, wide open. And, and this idea of Abraham as a high achiever who comes to God full of confidence is utterly unthinkable to Paul. So he exclaims, not before God. That's simply not possible before God. In other words, it's unthinkable to him. And the reason it's unthinkable is, verse 3, because it's unbiblical. 
So he asks in verse 3, what does the scripture say? What does the Bible actually say about Abraham's justification? It's a wonderful question, isn't it? So straightforward, so simple. What does the scripture say? In other words, it's not the popular Jewish belief of the time, nor nor even a pedigree of Jewish belief that goes back a long way in time. It's all about what scripture actually says about Abraham's justification. And and we'll see in a moment that Paul is intentionally um, objecting to the current popular Jewish um, belief about Abraham's justification. Um, And what scripture says in this instance is not difficult because there's only one verse in the whole of the Abraham narrative in Genesis chapters 12 to 25, and indeed only one verse in the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that combines faith and righteousness in this way. And it's Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it, namely that that act of believing in God, was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now, if you remember the story of Abraham in the the preceding verse of Genesis, Genesis 15, verse 5, remember that God takes Abraham outside. It's dark, it's the night, and he asks him to gaze up at the night sky and to count the stars. And then he asks Abraham, or rather, rather he says to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. In other words, he dramatically underlines to Abraham with this graphic visual image at night time, he underlines to him this promise of a seed, this promise of offspring that's at the heart of the account of Abraham. Remember, God had called Abraham to leave his homeland, to head off on a mission to bring blessing to a world that lay under God's curse, and he was to trust God for, the, for everything that God had promised in the future. And at this point in the story, it's a bit of a crisis moment because far from being a great nation, Abraham doesn't even have a single legitimate heir who will inherit the promise, who will carry on God's blessing to the world. Abraham has ventured his life totally and completely on God's promise and he's left his past behind to follow God's call, but the promised blessing is nowhere to be seen. Nothing has changed in his circumstances at all. And he's afraid And we know he's afraid because in Genesis 15, verse 1, God comes in a vision, God's word comes to Abraham in a vision with an assurance. He says, don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. In other words, don't be afraid, Abraham. Don't be afraid about this this uncertain future that lies in front of you because I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide for you abundantly just as I have promised. Now, how great was that promised reward that Abraham, sorry, that God said he'd give to Abraham, as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is how great your reward, this is how great your offspring and seed will be. Now, to appreciate what Abraham experienced at this point, you need to get out of Sydney, and you need to actually go out into the country Uh, You need to go deep into the country, away from all the city's artificial lights that prevent us from actually seeing the stars um, above us. In fact, you know, if you're a city dweller, which we are right here, 
it's really rare to actually see what Abraham saw. And I think the last time I got to look up at the night sky and actually see that, that the endless teeming stars um, was a few years ago when um, Lizzie and I drove over to Mudgee. And we were staying in an Airbnb out in the country and we walked outside into the chilly night air and we stared up at the night sky. And if it wasn't for the fact that when you, you know when you do that, you get a really bad crink in your neck, so you can't do it for that long. But if it wasn't for that, you would just stare in amazement for ages, wouldn't you? It takes your breath away, the brightness, the brilliance. But, and this is God's point to Abraham, above all, the seemingly endless expanse. And God simply says to Abraham in Genesis 15:5 so shall your offspring be, like those stars. And then Genesis 15:6 says, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord and, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he took God at, at his word, remarkable and extraordinary as that promise was, he took him at his word and banked his life on it. And as um, Paul says later in the chapter, in Romans 4, verse 21, he believed that God was able to do what he had um, promised. In other words, he just trusted God. And therefore, God justified him. His faith was credited as righteousness. God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, what exactly does that mean? It's the same as God justifying us. In other words, God accepting us as righteous in his sight. But what does this mean, that God credited his faith to him as righteousness? Here's how Paul's contemporaries read it. They read it in the light of Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, Abraham is called by God to go up the mount and to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the altar. And what they said is... <coughs> that Abraham was found to be faithful in the midst of trial, and as a result, his righteousness merited God's decision and determination that he was um, a righteous man. In other words, they read Genesis 15 through the lens of Genesis 22. This faith is faithfulness, and this crediting of righteousness is giving Abraham according to the merit of the faithfulness that he's shown to God. Now notice in the light of that, this illustration that Paul gives in verses 4 to 5. Because he gives this um, simple illustration, doesn't he, to explain Genesis 15, verse 6. And in this illustration, he explicitly rejects one way of understanding Genesis 15, 6, and he underlines another way of understanding it. And this is so important to grasp. It's not just an academic matter because it goes to the heart of what gives us confidence and assurance in our relationship with God. You see, on the one hand, there's the worker who does his job. He goes to the office or he's out on the farm. He goes into his study. And the reward he gets is credited to him. Notice what it says, not according to grace, but according to what he's owed. So there's a certain type of performance that is credited with a credit, and there's another type of performance that's credited with an HD. There's a certain type of work for which you get paid $30,000 a year, and there's another type of work which actually makes you into a millionaire, and so on. In other words, according to your performance and your pay, you get 
your credit. You get your reward. But, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes on the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now notice two things about this contrast between the believer and the worker. The first is that the believer does no work. The believer does no work. Now Paul could have expressed the contrast. He could have simply said, to the one who works, this is the case. To the one who believes, this is the case. But notice what he actually says. To the one who works... His wages are not credited according to grace, etc. But to the one who does not work, but believes. In other words, he's underlining that this faith that he's talking about does no work at all. Now imagine that, and this is, this is supposed to sound really shocking. Imagine that you do no work, but you get an HD. You do no work, but you're given the biggest pay packet in the world. Paul's intentionally expressing this in a really shocking way to the one who does no work, just doesn't do a thing, but believes on the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, this this is why justification is by faith alone. Because the believer does no work. It's by faith alone, apart from works. It's a totally different economy, isn't it? This is the economy of God's grace, not the way in which you could possibly run any any human economy. And the context is all important. So Paul is not saying that a believer folds his or her arms and does nothing in life and is unproductive. It's quite clear that it's actually only the person who trusts in Christ that can bear the fruit of the Spirit and can live a life of love and joy and peace and patience. The point is that the believer does no work for his righteousness. There's no work for his justification, does, does no, no work, nothing for his acceptance with God. And this is explaining what, hap- what was happening as Abraham was standing outside looking up, this, up at the stars in the night sky. See, God was giving Abraham a promise, and that it was utterly beyond his reach. It was as far beyond his reach as those stars were beyond him. And he was fearful. He couldn't do anything. And that's why he was fearful. He couldn't do anything to make the reward his. It was beyond him. And if it was going to materialize, the same God that flung those stars into space was going to have to put children into his household. And that's what he believed. He believed that God would do this extraordinary miracle. And the way Paul describes what was happening then is in verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes. Believes upon the one who justifies the ungodly. So believing is not like working. It relies upon the work of another. It relies upon the justifying activity of God, the one who justifies the ungodly. It's a totally different sort of of human activity altogether. It makes no contribution It relies totally on what God does for us in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. It is Christ-directed, not self-directed. It's Christ-reliant, not self-reliant. It involves the abandoning, not the congratulating of self. It is totally different to working. 
Think for a moment of a couple of, um, couple of grandparents and they're sitting on their back deck and they're looking out into the yard and their children and their grandchildren are playing together and it's a beautiful sunny day and the barbie's on and the smells are coming and, and they're, they're, just, they're just sitting there and they turn to each other and pride fills their hearts. They just feel so proud. Look at, look at what's come of our family. There they are, chuffed. Now imagine that's Abraham, the patriarch Abraham. And if it were possible, which it's not, gathered around him are generations of his descendants, not playing in the backyard but filling the length and breadth of the land of Canaan. What would Abraham say? If he was to turn to Sarah, what would he say? Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done as I look out all these, all these descendants that have come into being. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, look at what God has done. Isn't this extraordinary? What a miracle. I had no idea how God would do it, but he's done it. He's been true to his word. He's been true to his every promise. And I boast in him alone. I boast in him alone. I I did nothing. God has done everything. But notice, not only does the believer do no work, but the believer merits no pay. The believer merits no pay. It's not just that there are these two totally different types of human activity, um, the the working and believing, but there are two totally different ways of crediting a reward. There's a way of understanding God credited to, to him as righteousness that Paul is going out of his way to reject it. It's the idea that Abraham got credit where credit is due. Now listen to Rabbi Shemaiah writing in about 50 B.C., He imagines that God says this to the people of Israel. The faith with which your father Abraham believed in me merits that I should divide the sea for you, as it is written. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So this idea of Abraham's faith or faithfulness meriting God's reward of righteousness isn't something that developed later. It's something that was was there even before the time of Paul. In other words, the idea was that this faith of Abraham was intrinsically righteous. It had inherent merit. And so God gives credit where credit is due. And in this case, so meritorious was Abraham's faith that it functioned as a treasury of merit out of which God blessed the Israelites. Now, imagine you're playing cricket after lunch. And let's say Simon is batting. And he connects so well with the ball that it flies right up and it ends up onto the the balcony of the second floor of of One King Street. And you say, great shot, Simon. And what's happening there? That's credit where credit is due. Simon hit the ball for six, and it was credited to him as a great shot. Why was it credited to him as a great shot? Because it was a great shot. And and Paul's contemporaries read Genesis 15 like this. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because... That faith was inherently righteous. No. No, Paul says. And that's why he, go, he goes out of the way to refute that understanding. Paul's already told us what this righteousness is. Chapter 3, verse 21. It's revealed by God. It's not a righteousness achieved in the believer, but it's a righteousness accomplished in Jesus Christ, in his sacrificial death, which exhausted the penalty for sins, chapter 3, verse 25, and who rose again for our justification, chapter 4, verse 25. It's a righteousness that comes from God, 
and is found in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not intrinsic to us. And notice that Paul says, God justifies the ungodly. It's Paul's attempt to refute the idea that there was any intrinsic righteousness in Abraham. It's not in Abraham, it's found in Christ. And this is what Luther and the other reformers meant when they spoke of a righteousness that was outside of us or an alien righteousness. In other words, it's not a righteousness in our hearts at all. So it's not only something that I can't work for, it's not even something that God works in me. It's not a quality that resides within. It is an accomplishment outside of me, in Christ. And if I'm in him, I'm as righteous in God's sight as Christ is righteous in God's sight. The one who lived the perfect life, the one who died for our sins, and the one whom God raised to vindicate him as righteous in his sight. As I say, this is, this is not an academic issue. It's about where you build your hope. It's about where I build my hope for the future. It's about where your stability is when the storms of life come. It's about whether we can still stand in God's presence, firm and secure, when those pesky blackbirds that Satan sends to peck away at our peace and our security um, do their utmost to uproot us. And they will. They'll do it. Do we have a faith with roots that goes all the way down? You know, if it hasn't come already, the time will come in your life when, as the song puts it, Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Now, where, where do you look then? Where, where do I look then when Satan tempts me to despair and just tells me of that guilt? Now, if you look inside of yourself to find faith at that moment, you won't find it. You'll just be consumed with a greater knowledge of your guilt. And the more you look, the more you will despair. So where do you look? Upward I look to the risen, exalted Christ and see him there who made an end of all my sin. In a recent article in the magazine First Things, uh, someone called Onsi Carmel speaks of how he left Catholicism and became a Protestant believer in Christ. And I want to finish with this testimony. He speaks about how when he was in college, his friends started converting to Catholicism and how he found himself, as he puts it, when he came to Catholicism, he felt, quote, that I came into an inheritance. In other words, he became conscious that for the first time in his life, he was rooted within this great tradition, a church that was deeply planted in history and had such respect for the church fathers and the traditions of the centuries and so on. And to cut a long article short, he concludes by saying this. I will never forget the moment when, like Luther 500 years earlier, I discovered justification by faith alone through union with Christ. I was sitting in my dorm room by myself. I'd been assigned Luther's explanations of the 95 Theses, and I expected to find it facile. A year or two prior, I decided that Trent, that's, that's the Council of Trent, was right about justification. It was entirely a gift of grace. This is what he believed when he was a Catholic. It was entirely a gift of grace consisting of the gradual perfecting of the soul by faith and works. 
God instigating and me cooperating. In other words, God working faith in me and me working righteousness out in my life. For years, I had attempted to live out this model of justification. I'd gone to Mass regularly, prayed the rosary with friends, fasted frequently, read the scriptures daily, prayed earnestly and sought advice from spiritual directors. I'd begun this arduous cooperation with God's grace, full of hope. By the time I sat in that dorm room alone, I was distraught and demoralized. I'd learned just how wretched a sinner I was. No good work was unsullied by pride, no repentance unaccompanied by expectations of future sin, no love free from selfishness. In this state, I picked up my copy of that arch-heretic Luther and read his explanation of Thesis 37. Any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church, and this is granted him by God, even without indulgence letters. With these words, Luther transformed my understanding of justification. Every Christian possesses Christ, and to possess Christ is to possess all of Christ's righteousness, life, and merits. Christ had joined me to himself. And then he says, at that moment, the joy of my salvation poured into my soul. I wept and showed forth God's praise. I had finally discovered the true ground and power of Protestantism. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He abandoned one view of justification that claimed it had roots. That is the great claim. But he discovered that there was another view of justification that really did have roots, roots that went all the way back to Abraham, a justification by faith alone. And like Abraham, he looked away from himself to the God who justifies the ungodly and found his righteousness in another, in the promised seed, Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, as you think about the future, whether it's the future of your exams or whether it's the future of um, finding a job beyond, beyond college, to look to Christ and to him alone and to remember that your righteousness is not in your performance here at college nor in my performance here at college, but in Christ who's perfected a righteousness for us. May our confidence be in him alone.